أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم سبحانك اللهم لا علم لنا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت العليم الحكيم وعنده مفاتح الغيب لا يعلمها إلا هو ويعلم ما في البر والبحر وما تسقط من ورقة إلا يعلمها ولا حبة في ظلمات الأرض ولا رطب ولا يابس إلا في كتاب مبين Oftentimes we read uh, the books of the people that came before us and we're always intrigued you know, by what they have to say and we have this moral issue in which we usually assume that those that came before us are morally better than we are and that's because the Prophet ﷺ, he told us that the best generation is my generation and then the one after that and then the one after that. So morally, we, we look backwards uh, in a sense. But in the process of looking backwards morally, sometimes we also look back academically. And that can be a double-edged sword. So what, am I, what do I mean by that? You can read a book of fiqh that was written centuries ago. You could read a tafsir that was written centuries ago. You could re- read a book of aqidah, of theology that was written centuries ago. But in that process, we have to remember that what those people wrote at that time was the extent of their skills and their knowledge at that time. And what's more important than reading what they wrote that's very important, so I'm not saying it's not important, but what's more important than that is understanding how they thought. And if you read a book of tafsir, for example, you don't want to just learn about the tafsir, you want to learn how the mufassir thinks. If you read a book about law, you don't want to just learn the law, you want to learn how the jurist thought. If you read a book on theology, you want to know how the theologian thought. Because we are presented with the same set of problems that they were presented with. And, and, and we're also presented with problems that they were not presented with. You know, they didn't have issues of artificial intelligence. They didn't have the issue of cryptocurrency and blockchain. They didn't have the, the, the challenges of communications that we have. They didn't have the issue of, of environmental, uh, the environmental crisis and pollution and global warming, so on and so forth. So we have a, a, another set of issues. So if you read a book that was written four, five, a thousand years ago, it's not necessarily going to solve the issues that we have today. But, what's, but what it does help us is it helps us understand how to think the way that they thought. And it is from this general introduction that we understand the importance of one of our disciplines, which is called usul al-fiqh, uh, the methodologies of jurisprudence, which in essence is an Islamic invention. So the science of usul or the science of principles and methodology is something that Muslim uh, jurists primarily essentially came up with out of the need for answering the question, how do we interpret the Qur'an and the Sunnah? And how do we know that our interpretation is correct? And this is one of the things, one of the disciplines that the, the Muslim scholars in the past uh, gave us. So I want to take us through a, a set of questions, theoretical questions, that a person that is inside this discipline would ask themselves and to see how they answered and then hopefully at the end of it we will understand why this concept of usul al-fiqh or uh, you know, the methodology of jurisprudence, how it ends up becoming one of our first principles, which is you know, our theme, our first principles of how we approach the Qur'an and the Sunnah. So the, the first question, and this, this is, you know, we're, this, we're speaking here theoretically. The first question is, what is proof in religion? How do I know that something is Islam and then something therefore is not Islam? Is it the person in the mosque that tells me? Is it my parents, my friends? 
Is it simply uh, the people that were alive during the time of the Prophet ﷺ, the Sahaba? So if you're living in like the first two, three hundred years of Islam, this is a question that actually people needed to answer. And for us, I mean, it's very, we kind, of, we kind of know what that is intuitive, but there was a time where this question needed to be asked. What is proof in Islam? And of course the answer is, well, it's the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And while that might sound very simple, in essence it's very important that we remind ourselves that, that somebody had to come to this conclusion. Because that is what, how the religion is formed. The religion is what is extracted from the Qur'an and extracted from the Sunnah. Not what my opinion is, what your opinion is, or all of the other things, that is what Islam is not. This does not, and here we're talking about proof. We're not talking about cultural manifestations or dress or, or things like that, custom, that's, that's something else. Here we're talking about you know, orthodoxy. How do we create correct, true Islam? The first thing is, where is that proof? What we call in Arabic, al-hujayya, where is that proof? And the proof, therefore, is in the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Now, really, nobody up until now en masse has disputed the proof power of the Qur'an. But many Muslims, believe it or not, challenge the proof power of the Sunnah. And I always joke, I say, you know, every family has one of these uncles that, you know, denies the Sunnah and says things like, you know, if the Prophet ﷺ was alive today, he would wear jeans. If the Prophet ﷺ was alive today, you know, he would drink coke. If the Prophet ﷺ was alive today, he would use a toothbrush and Colgate. And all, all of this nonsense, you know. And, and the answer, you know, to that is, well, you can say many things that are polite and not polite. But, well, we don't know what the Prophet ﷺ would do because he's not with us, nor will he be with us, nor do we believe that he is, he is coming back to us the way we believe that Christ ﷺ is coming back to us. But I say that jokingly to highlight this, this issue, which unfortunately there are many Muslims and now groups, whether they be very official or unofficial, that deny large sections of the Sunnah, large sections of the Hadith. But when we return, the reason why we're discussing all of this is that we have to remind ourselves that no proof, uh, uh, verifiable proof, in what forms our religion is first and foremost the Qur'an and the Sunnah. So then the second theoretical question that comes after that, the first one, is how can we verify, how do we know that what we have is the Qur'an and what we have is the Sunnah? So if we've established theoretically that we will take our religion only from the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And, and by that I mean its interpretation. I don't mean you know, just verbatim or uh, without, and we'll come to what happens if we have something, a question that's not in the Qur'an and the Sunnah in a second. So I'm just saying that we know where, we're, where the compass is pointing. It's pointing towards the Qur'an and the Sunnah. The second thing is I need to prove that what I have is the Qur'an and is the Sunnah. And this concept of verification, therefore, became almost an obsession with the early generation. Of course, at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, both the Qur'an and the Hadith were written. Sometimes people, they don't, they don't know this. They think that uh, a common, um, from the same uncles that I just mentioned previously, a, a common misconception they have is that, oh, the hadith was written, you know, 300 years after the life of the Prophet Wasallam. It's actually not true. The Qur'an and the Sunnah, the hadith, I mean the hadith, were written at the time of the Prophet Wasallam. They were written on parchment, they were written on bones, uh, you know, early, uh, whatever material that they had, which was essentially at that time in ancient Arabia unparalleled. We have the concept now, well, if it's not written, if it's not documented, if it's not printed, then it didn't really ha happen. That's a modern bias that we have. Because pre-modern people, they just memorized everything that they needed to memorize. But even despite the fact that that was what was considered normal, the Sahaba thought that what was happening in front of them from the Prophet ﷺ was so miraculous, because of course it was, it was revelation, that they wrote everything down. 
And you had early collections of the Mus'haf and you had early collections of the Hadith. They were called Sahifa, you know, Sahifa of, of such and such Sahaba, Sahifa of such and such Sahaba. And we know from our own history that during the Khilafah of, of Abu Bakr anhu, and during the Khilafah of Sayyidina Uthman anhu, they took this effort to com- convene a committee that would compile the Qur'an in the official script and like the official, uh, you know, the official version of the Muslims of the Mus'haf. And uh, the one that happened during the time of Abu, Sayyidina Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu was the first attempt, but it was written without uh, vowels and, and the dots and things like that that we're now familiar with in the Arabic script. And then Sayyidina Uthman radiallahu anhu, he convened the second committee. And it is because of that that we refer to the script of the Qur'an as the Uthmanic script. So the Qur'an, not only is it preserved in its memory, that we memorize the verses, but it's also preserved in how it is written. There is a science in how the Qur'an is written. Because the same words in the Qur'an are not spelled the same way throughout the Qur'an. Ibrahim, for example, one time it will have a ya, one time it will have an alif, other times it will not. And the, there, are, there are experts in the script of the Qur'an. I mean, now with the printing press, that, that expertise is dwindling. But nonetheless, it's something that is still studied. How do you know and verify that the script of the Qur'an is the correct script? Even if the verses are in the right order and they're, they're, they're put together, everything is fine. They have to be spelled a certain way. They have to be written a certain way. Now, why would the Muslims need to do that? If, if, you, if it's permissible to write a word this way or write a word that way, why do they have to preserve exactly the same spelling in this instance and the same spelling in that instance? Because of the first question that we answered, is that this is where religion is derived from. So therefore, we need to make an effort to preserve and to verify that every verse that we have, that every mushaf that we have, is without doubt the Qur'an that was revealed to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And, and you've heard me say this many times, but there are no discrepancies in any manuscript or printed Qur'an throughout the history of Islam. There is no missing surah or missing juz or missing verse. It doesn't exist. The Qur'an is the same Qur'an. Nothing has changed whatsoever. Because the Muslims were obsessed with this concept of verification. And the same concept of verification also took place with the sunnah. Again, sometimes we forget these points of our history. But the verification of the sunnah, we're more familiar with the chain of transmission. You know, we always begin the hadith, like if somebody's giving a khutbah or a class, you know, the hadith that's narrated by Abu Huraira, for example. But that's not the only person that narrates the hadith. There is a, a list, a chain of people connecting the person speaking back to that companion, back to that Prophet ﷺ. And that chain of transmission used to verify the hadith was the same concept, the same chain of transmission that was used to verify the Qur'an. But you don't read the Qur'an that way. You just pick it up and say, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen. That's sort of how we read it. Because the chain of transmission is not part of the revelation. It's part of the verification of the text. But in the hadith, we still preserve that part. And by the way, anyone that studies the Qur'an with a licensed teacher will receive this, this chain of the, of the Qur'an, of how they received the Qur'an going back to the Prophet ﷺ. The same uh, ijazah, the same sanad, the same chain exists. But in the hadith, when we print the books of hadith, that's how we print it. So what people like Imam al-Bukhari and Imam Muslim, you know, radiallahu anhum, and all of the others that gathered the canon of the hadith, that's what they did. They were looking at this chain and trying to verify that this is sound, or this is not so sound, maybe this is weak, but if you put one week with another week, with a third week, it strengthens it. So it's a whole science, a whole you know, lacuna of, of, of chains of transmissions that strengthen the text. Why? To verify that this is something that came from the mouth of the Prophet ﷺ. Why? Because this is our religion. Our religion and the proof of the religion comes from the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Therefore, we must verify that this is the Qur'an, and we must verify that this is the Sunnah. So when we come to speak about Islam, we have no ambiguity, no doubt that what we are saying is correct. Within our 
belief system, of course. Now, if somebody doesn't believe in the Quran or the Sunnah, that's something else. So now that we know where the religion comes from and we know that we verified it, next comes, well, how do we know our understanding is correct? How do I know that this verse means that, this hadith means this, etc.? And it is from this that we have our tools of interpretation, which is a whole other discussion that we're not necessarily going to get into. But there are certain concepts, there are certain methods, there are certain ways of how we interpret the Qur'an and the Sunnah. One way that we don't interpret the Qur'an and the Sunnah is, well, well, I think it means this, or I think it means that. This is not an art, this is a science. We call it a science because it has certain rules and certain uh, axioms and principles and this whole series of what we're talking about is the you know, first principles of Islam, etc. to impress upon us that this is a discipline that must be learned. So when somebody like Imam al-Shafi says, I think the verse means this, it's not what, it, that doesn't mean the same thing as when I say, I think the verse means this. He says, I think, i.e. using the tools of interpretation that I have, using my ijtihad, etc. I believe that the verse means this, Wallahu alam, and God knows best. Part of that, as we've discussed previously, is learning the Arabic language and not interpreting or deriving meaning um, exact meaning except from the Arabic language. Part of it is making sure that if we're discussing a certain subject, that we've gathered all of the hadith that talk about this subject, rather than just some of the hadith, etc. So there are many uh, rules that we have. And when somebody you know, begins their quest to study the Sharia sciences, this is essentially what they're studying, is they're studying these tools of how to interpret. So there can be a correct way of interpreting and there, there can be an incorrect way of interpreting, therefore. Now this does not mean that all of our understandings will be the same. Because embedded in the Qur'an and the Sunnah is a plural understanding of, these, of the texts. Words have multiple meanings. Uh, there are different ways of interpreting certain verses and certain hadith. So we've, we've, we have, fortunately, a multiplicity of interpretations that are all simultaneously correct, all simultaneously orthodox. But they all follow the same system of interpretation. That's what matters. The same tools of interpretation. <clears throat> the same principles, the same skills that are required to interpret and derive meanings from the Qur'an and the Sunnah. In the process of interpretation, without doubt, we will be looking at verses of the Qur'an and we will be looking at texts of the Hadith. But the weight given to the Qur'an is different than the weight given to the Hadith from its proof power, if you, if you will. The Qur'an, we believe, of course, is the eternal, uncreated word of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So all of the verses in the Qur'an have the same type of proof power. They're absolute texts. Meaning, to use the language of the hadith, all of the verses of the Qur'an are sahih. There's no weak verses of the Qur'an. There's no like extra verse of Surah Al-Ikhlas that we don't recite in prayer because it's weak, but we print in the Muslim or something. It doesn't exist, right? All of the, the Qur'an is the Qur'an. But the hadith is different. There are some texts that are sahih. There are some texts that are hasan or you know, in the middle. Or okay, there are some that are weak, da'if. There are some hadith that are mutawatir, which means that that hadith was narrated by so many different people that it's statistically impossible that they conspired to make it up. Another, a higher class of sahih. And by the way, all of the verses of the Qur'an are narrated to us by tawatir. They're all tawatir sahih. In the, in the science of transmission. Of course, I mean, anything else would be, would be crazy. But the hadith are not like that. So some of the hadith, they give us an absolute proof power. And some of, us, they give, some of the hadith, they give us a not necessarily absolute. Which is what we call in the science of usul al-fiqh mutlaq. 
and dhanni, that, that some of them are absolute, but some of them are partial. And you need to take that into consideration as you are interpreting, as you are putting together the hadith and the sunnah to make you know, rulings, to answer questions of theology, etc. So that becomes another, another factor, another principle that we have as we approach the Qur'an and sunnah to create for ourselves matters of religion. But because we are a community that, you know, that transmits our findings, as it were, generation to generation, as we now look back you know, to over you know, 1,000 and you know, 400 years of scholarship, there are also issues, it's not like all of the issues we've only thought of. Many of the issues that we think are, are issues actually have been resolved in the past. And when issues are resolved in the past, taken into consideration everything that we've set up until now, we call this resolution the consensus of the community, the scholarly community, what we call in Arabic ijma'. So if there's an issue that there's consensus about, that we don't have to debate it anymore. We accept it as something that's incumbent upon us. And this is another issue that unfortunately a lot of contemporary Muslims stumble on. And they, they don't understand this concept of ijma or even worse, they reject it. And therefore they're, they, they're wanting to you know, have a fresh and new level of interpretation to certain concepts. <coughs> You hear this quite frequently when it comes to discussions of women's dress or multiple marriage, you know, polygamy. You know, the issues that are not considered socially acceptable according to the dominant culture today. Muslims will, t- you know, some Muslims will tend to want to re-examine or reinterpret in light of modern or whatever they, however they phrase it. But what they are doing transactionally is they are going against this concept of consensus. Well, this issue has been settled. Nobody has interpreted this verse in the history of Islam other than this way. That's, that's, a, that's a sealed matter. That's as if you have read a verse of the Qur'an that explicitly says that, whatever that case may be. So issues of consensus, and they are, by the way, uh, not so many, not, not so many that you would think. In other words, the plurality of interpretation is the majority of our interpretation of the Qur'an and the Sunnah. But there are some issues that are just, well, that's, just, there's, that's the way it is. That's the, every generation has understood that. So if every generation has understood that, then we accept that as also part of our religion. Now again, remember, this set of theoretical questions that we're asking is for us to be able to in, develop in front of us, you know, correct Real Islam. That's what we're trying to, in, you know, in, in this, these few minutes that we have together. The fifth step in these theoretical questions is to ask, well, what happens if we're talking about something that we don't find in the Qur'an and the Sunnah? Directly. Uh, what if there's, you know, a new thing that's happened, a new technology, a new custom, a new transaction, all of the things that we have today that we do not find explicitly in the Qur'an or explicitly in the Sunnah. So the, the scholars of this discipline of Usul al-Fiqh, they said, okay, well we need to also allow for some type of analogy. We will look at the Qur'an and we will look at the Sunnah of course, to, to derive rulings directly for the things that we are direct, like you know, matters of wudu, or matters of prayer, or matters of fasting, or matters of zakah, or hajj that are very explicit. But for other things that are not explicit, the ibadat, the acts of worship, they're, they're explicit. You know, there's no new worship, act of worship that we have to you know, consider. But in social interaction, which is the majority of our life, there are many, many new things that, that occur. So... We look to the Qur'an and the Sunnah, also, we, we look to them, uh, let me phrase it a, a little better. We look to the Qur'an and the Sunnah for the prima facie interpretation, but we also look to the Qur'an and the Sunnah as axiomatic principles. So we'll take this verse as a concept. 
will take this hadith as a concept. And therefore, if we find something in the you know, new, we will see what type of Quranic or hadith concept does it fall under. And therefore, we can employ this analogy and say, well, in this case, we rule this way, so in this new case, we would rule that way. So the concept of analogy becomes very important. And this is what allows us to, to state the following claim, that Islam is valid for every time and every place and every circumstance. And that's one of our, you know, our articles of belief. Is we do not believe that the Sharia or the Quranic message or the Sunnah or whatever is confined to the time of the Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba. But rather it continues to guide and inform our actions today. Well how can it continue to inform our actions today if everything that we have now, almost everything we have in our quote-unquote dunya life didn't exist at that time? Well the answer is in this discussion of analogy. Is that we do not limit the Quran and the Sunnah by the specific circumstance of the verse or circumstance of the hadith. But we use them also as axioms, as principles, as concepts. And Allah Ta'ala refers to this in the Qur'an, saying in, in, in the Qur'an is every example. You know, for you will read in the Qur'an. This means that, well, okay, then all of these are examples for us to understand. <clears throat> and this, is, this part is super important in the modern period, because when we talk about financial transactions, for example, uh, an area that uh, I, got in, I was involved in a little bit, all of our modern banking transactions, almost all of them, have no parallel in the Sharia. These are all new. Even the nature of currency and money and bank, all of this didn't exist before. So you have to use this concept of analogy and principles to make sense of the sort of modern finance. As it relates to individuals, as it relates to businesses, as it relates to nations and things like that. And then lastly... What happens if we find texts in the Qur'an and the Sunnah that seem to contradict one another? This is another theoretical question that happens. And this is again where this concept of usul al-fiqh or the methodology of jurisprudence becomes very important. Because how do we then reconcile the differences? Is it an issue of abrogation, nasq? Did, did, was, was the ruling like this at this time and then later the Prophet ﷺ changed it? Is it that one hadith is stronger than another? Or it's a Qur'an versus hadith and we give weight to the Qur'an? Or do we give weight to the sunnah? Etc. How do we reconcile the differences between that which what we have? The Prophet ﷺ said this here but he said something else there, but it kind of, why would he say this, but then he would also say that, that doesn't make sense to me. That doesn't make sense, that's not consistent. What is, how do we reconcile? So a lot of what we need to do is reconcile these texts. And this is where this, uh, this discussion of reconciling contradictions is very important when we talk about violence and, and extremism within the family of Islam. Because a lot of people that promote violence and extremism they do not understand this concept. That we have an overarching principle of mercy. That was the, one of the first things we talked about in this series. That everything is mercy driven. The Qur'an is the book of mercy. The Prophet ﷺ is the prophet of mercy. We are to be people of mercy. The Qur'an begins in the name of Allah, the merciful, the compassionate. Bismillah rahman rahim We went on and on, we talked about this concept of mercy. If that's you know, principle number one, then there's no way that that principle would breed you know, violence and, and, and killing and slaughtering. That, that doesn't make sense. So these people, they'll say, but there's a hadith that says that. There's a hadith that says this about the kuffar, etc. And then we'll come and be like, no, you've, you, you haven't reconciled, you haven't understood that this hadith needs to be understood in light of the greater concept of mercy. It's, for example, uh, jihad is not as you understand it, but jihad is linked to the spiritual struggle. And, and warfare, human con conflict, is something that is detested. Because Allah says, That fighting has been prescribed to you, but it is something that you dislike. Addressing the Prophet ﷺ in Surah Al-Baqarah. So on and so forth. So how do you reconcile these differences? So these six questions, theoretical questions, is essentially how this entire 
science or discipline of usul al-fiqh emerged, all with the aim of providing us with a framework, a mental framework of principles that we apply in reading the Qur'an and the Sunnah so we don't get lost, so we don't create rules that contradict each other, so we don't have any doubt in what we have derived, and that we don't make any mistakes in our interpretation. And that is why all of this for, for the lay person is the reposit of all of this are the different schools of thought, the different madhahib. And that's why these schools of thought and schools of interpretation are so important to us. Because embedded in them are the answers to all of these questions according to the principles of that school of thought. And that's why they, have, they are the greatest institution that Islam ever you know, has are these different schools of interpretation and in school of thought according to these principles. Wallahu alam. <clears throat> Any questions? Yeah. Could you please talk about the default? Welcome back. Thank you. Well, there's a difference between knowing about it and, there's, and, and doing it. So we're, right now we're just talking about knowing about it. I mean, this is you know, not even like the introduction of the first chapter of the usul. I mean, it's a huge discipline and, and it can get quite complex. But I think it's important to be literate, I think is the right word, uh, in it. So that in the back of your mind, if you remember anything... If somebody says, you know, all of these, all of this madhahib, this is, you know, nonsense. I just want to know what the Prophet ﷺ did. You, you, like an alarm goes off. You're like, well, that doesn't make sense because the madhahib is what the Prophet ﷺ did. Because of, I remember hearing about these, you know, questions. I think that's what's important to be literate. Um, and you know, Allah says, "Hal Are there equal people that know and people that don't know? So knowing is, is important. Period. So I just want us to know these things. However much you retain, and you know, is, is good. Um, but it's not like you know a necessity, of course. Uh, but we don't live in an age anymore where people just do what they're told. Everyone wants to question everything. And I heard this, and I heard that, and. Somebody will go home and watch a clip on YouTube and they'll say the exact opposite thing of what I said. So now they'll get confused and they won't understand. So I think it's important that we're literate. That's, that's how I'll, I'll phrase it. But you had another question that's more interesting, right? Well, that's a different topic. But it's, okay, this is the... the it's open for So I think the theater, or not just theater, but acting in general. Um, I was a thespian uh, in, in high school. Not that that's a proof of anything, but <laughs> but I, I know about it um, because I was also an, an actor of sorts. I remember the, the Bishop of London, he told me that all, all clergy are failed actors. So <laughs> I took that to heart. Anyway, um, there's, a, there's great benefit, I think, in... Um, in the power of theater and the power of acting. Uh, and I think the same type of rules that we would, we would address to any of the artistic forms, whether it be uh, you know, painting or uh, drawing or music, or what, we, I think that the same things would apply. That you know, if we're going to, we don't want to engage in the haram. You know? um, that's, I mean, that can be a lot of things, but I think we know what that is. And the point of the theater and the point of these plays and the po is is to drive some kind of message, uh, you know, home or to you know have some sort of discussion of issues that concern society and and that's why they're you know movies and stuff they're very powerful medium, and actually movies specifically now have allowed us to be able to understand a lot of the things that are in our religion that the pre-modern person couldn't understand. 
because of the power of you know special effects and things like that and the the drama that is associated with the with with the cinema it becomes very very powerful so i think on on the whole it's it's a it's a part of human expression it's very important it's good and it's something that we should be involved with to the extent that you know we realize that there are certain things that as as a practicing muslim we can't do regardless of the theater or not the theater or whatever etc but I mean, I want to. When you asked that question, it reminded me of a story of one of my, my one of my mentors, and um, he he was a convert. He converted in like the '60s, the early '60s, and he actually was an actor, and he was influenced by uh, by tasawwuf. That's how he came to Islam. And I asked him. I said, "Well, what made you convert? Like, what was it that like you know made sense to you that made you want to adopt Islam?" And he said, "Well, I was an actor." And when uh, whoever the Sufi figure that may, he was in, in touch with, whoever it was, he said he started to speak about dhikr and, and explaining what dhikr is, like that you constantly repeat God's name. And as he says, as an actor, I understood immediately what that meant because that's what we do as actors. We constantly practice and repeat our lines until we become that character. So nothing made more sense to me than that concept of dhikr. And ever since then, he became Muslim and, you know, he's... You know, he's even you know, penned many books and things like that. So acting is very powerful. And whenever I hear him talk about acting, because he, he, you know, he, he acted with like Jack Nicholson. I mean, he, you know, he's, he was, he's been around. Uh, you have a totally different appreciation for that art form. That it is indeed very powerful. So I think it's something that, that if people are, have the talent to do, they, they could do. They should do. I mean that's that's too broad, but but I, I think I understand what you're saying, and I would say yeah yes because it's that's the the form is to it's like if you were uh, composing a poem, uh, and in the poem there's a story about uh, you know a non-Muslim or doing this or that, but you're conveying the uh, the broader meaning, or you're writing a novel, mm-hmm. the same type of question, but but it's part of real life, it's part of you capturing what exists in reality and conveying it in this artistic form, and I think that that would be okay. I, I would, you know. I mean, of course, there'll be a limit where things will not be okay. But, but you know, for the limit of how you phrase the question, I think it's it's comfortably okay. I would say, if there is such a thing as comfortably okay. But I know I know of no other opinion. I mean, it is no. it is an issue of well, of, uh, of consensus. I'm not sure. Okay. I mean, well, I just know because perhaps, but 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 the issue the issue there's two issues. One issue is any type of punishment, actual punishment, is an issue that that automatically belongs to the court, not to like an actual court, not to the court of public opinion. So if somebody stole something or if somebody you know, committed some kind of crime, you know, you, your obligation would be to report it to the authorities. And then the authorities, they have to follow that, that kind of process. So the same thing, the, the Sharia operates the same way in those issues. So if somebody cursed the Prophet, وسلم, which is a huge, you know, yeah. for us, a, a huge moral you know, violation, that means it belongs to the courts, not, not to individual people. And in the court, the judge has the, the power and the authority 
to, to dispense justice the way that they see fit, you know, given like a million issues, not, not just one issue. So if you read like the penal book of Islam, you know, if you, what is the punishment for such and such? Yeah, the, the punishment for, blas- for you know, cursing the Prophet is, uh, is death. But that's not how it's enacted. And the other part of this, the issue to that is, well, what is blasphemy? That needs to be defined. What is cursing the Prophet Um Maybe somebody said something about the Prophet that we would say, you know, as, as somebody that has studied, would be like, this is blasphemous. Did you know that what you said is blasphemous? And the person's like, oh, I didn't know that. I was just trying to... I was just trying to get people to think and be, well, you know, don't say that again. That's 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 considered blasphemy. That's then that's not a blasphemous, you know, thing. So blasphemy needs to be defined, and we need to, uh, you know, the things have to be referred to the judge, and the system has to take into consideration, I guess, a third issue, which is most people don't know anything positive about Islam anymore. That Islam is seen as something you know, backwards, retarded, dumb, uh, lustful, uh, full of hate, violence, etc. So when people see that about Islam, and they say negative things about Islam, or the Prophet or the Qur'an, or, or Muslims, they're saying it because in their mind is something negative already. It's not because they understand who the Prophet is, so they're cursing him. So that's a little bit different. So I would say that, that we need to approach that issue. It, it's saying, well, you know, blasphemy... The capital punishment in the Sharia's blasphemy is is kind of not fair given everything that we've just just stated, because the punishment for stealing is that limbs are cut off, but but usually that doesn't happen, because there are mitigating factors in in, in that, or the punishment itself is suspended, like in Egypt the the, the capital the punishment of the had punishments have been suspended because had cases. The Prophet said in a hadith, Idra'ul Hududa Bishubahat, approach had punishments with doubt. So if any doubt can be established, even if it's 1%, then you don't carry out the had punishment. So the, the jurists, as they were codifying Egypt's law, they said, well, that, that's almost as if the Sharia doesn't want the had punishments to be carried out. So for over a thousand years, the had punishments in Egypt have not been, have not been dispensed because of the understanding of the Sharia, not despite it. So just because uh, the book of law says something, and we derive an understanding based on a hadith or a Qur'an does not necessarily mean that we also, even if that's, there's an ijma' around it, which I'm almost pretty sure this is an issue of ijma', but I have to verify. Yeah, I mean, I learned from others. It doesn't mean that we have to carry it out. Mm. So court punishments, hudud punishments, do not need to be carried out. Even if it's, yes, it's ijma', yes, the hadith says such and such, etc. But that's different than how we actually operate in the courts. Okay, but... See, because my thinking is like, because we know from the character <coughs> of the Prophet that he used to get insulted all kinds of names, right? Like, oh, uh, Mudhammam, perfect example. They called him Mudhammam. And he said, and the Prophet said, uh, what did he say? He said, oh, uh, look how Allah's protected me from their curses. They're cursing a guy named Mudhammam, but I'm Muhammad. So, like, for example, when those French people who drew those cartoons a couple years ago, you know, right? drawing like very vulgar things of the Prophet And many Muslims understandably had a harsh reaction. I'm just wondering, should we, we have just ignored it? Because there was a greater harm in reacting towards it. Yeah, that's a different issue. Yes, yeah, so we should definitely ignore. Because if you, if, you were not a, if you were not a Muslim and if you did not come from a Muslim background, you probably would have drawn the same thing or, or, or felt like drawing something like that. Because this... this People have to understand is that they have they have been bred systematically that 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 Islam Muslims the Prophet of Islam والسلام, the Quran all of these things are highly negative negative things and this has been happening for hundreds of years hundreds of years systematically in Western literature in Western cinema uh, in Western literature so do not be surprised that somebody that does not come from a Muslim background has nothing good to say about Islam or Muslims. So yes, we, we not only should we ignore that, we should really focus on you know, ourselves being a better example. It's strategic, tactically, it's very wrong that we get all up in arms. Like the whole Danish cartoon thing, and 
you know, embassies were burned. I mean, you know, these are haram acts. But I'm mostly asking why was there a need for a blasphemy punishment in the first place? If the prophet can you, Bilal, can you give me another? I think this is uh, dying. Because, because of the greatness of the Prophet no, of course, but if the Prophet so, Because for us, the Prophet is holy. Of course. Like, no, the, Quran, like the Quran is holy. Yeah. Like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the creator. So how can you be in the... How can you be a Muslim and then curse the Prophet I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a immoral infraction. And it's also uh, a punishable infraction. But, it, but thank you. But punishable... I'll see if it, it right, but I'm up. not talking about Muslims. I'm talking about non-Muslims because their mere existence as being non-Muslims is an insult to the Prophet because they didn't accept his message. And we we allow kufr in Muslim states. Well, just because somebody the, just because somebody doesn't believe in the Prophet doesn't mean they're a kafir. If somebody doesn't believe, they just don't believe. Period. A kafir is a very active. Process. It means that you have received the message of Islam, understood the message of Islam, and rejected the message of Islam. Which is hardly any. Have you ever met anyone that's done that? Most Muslims haven't received the message of Islam in its entirety. Because we all have that one uncle in our family that we're, we're trying to hide from a Da'id party. <clears throat> so, all those people out there are just simply people. And if you have not received the message of Islam and understood the message of Islam and rejected the message of Islam, you're saved. Yom al-Qiyamah. Furthermore, despite everything that you've done, you could have been a serial killer and bad in our understanding and appropriately punished. But in the Akhirah, you could be saved. Why? Because you have not received the message. Because Allah says, وَمَا كُنَّا We do not punish a people until they have received a message. So that's why the blasphemy thing I think is a little bit complicated because we forget about, about that. So if somebody, not only they have not received the message of Islam, they have received a distorted message or image of Islam, then for them, they have not received this concept that the Prophet was like this beautiful, wonderful, you know, perfect human being. The, the, the person that we are obsessed with praising and loving they haven't received that. So there's, there's nothing for them to blaspheme against because they just don't, they don't under, the concept of who Sayyidina Muhammad is for them, Sassam, is different than it is for us. So because of, these, because of this complicated issue, I, I, all of these things, most likely, if I was the head of state, I would suspend these, but I will, most likely will never be the head of state. So I don't have to worry about that. It's complicated. Do you have anything, you guys? You're all sitting in the dark. Anybody else? Yeah? So, in the sciences, many times we have to experiment on animals. And I'm just wondering what's the degree in which we're allowed to do that for the benefit of human beings? Like frogs or cats or... That's a good question. I mean, I think, uh, I think there would be a lot of limits according to I the mean, Sharia. I, would imagine too. <laughs> I, you know, I don't think that the Sharia would I mean, actively condone the torturing of animals I mean, like, to be fair, for the benefit of Procter and Gamble and shampoo. Pretty well, but even even then, like, there's still some areas where it's like you don't even need Islam to feel a little uncomfortable with some of the. Well, animals have rights. Uh, you know, all living things have rights, trees, water, according to the Sharia, I mean. Um, and um, we are, we have an overarching command to, to show mercy to all, you know, all things in creation, which means preserving those, those rights. Um, so I think that, I don't know much about this area, but the little that I know, I know enough that there are multiple ways of testing things or products or whatever and usually in the in the case of companies they choose the cheapest way the most cost effective way of testing which which usually has the highest form of torture towards the animals um, and that's something where the sharia would, would step in and be like well that's haram i mean you know if there's another way uh, then you have to find the other way so yeah 
No, I mean the 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 hadith is is it says men fil ard, you know, show mercy to everything on earth. Everything, every person, every living thing, and we believe everything is alive and animated. No, I mean any animals that we cannot test, like frogs. A lot of ulama, like in, I don't, in Pakistan, I don't know about Egypt, but they say, oh, frogs are definitely not allowed to test because frogs make us be, um, I don't know if that's a thing. Like versus like the horse? No, I mean, I have no, idea. no the, there's, there. <laughs> I've never heard that. No, all, all, all living things, we believe that everything in, in nature is alive. That's one of our beliefs. And, and part of everything in nature being alive is that everything is in a state of worship and submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Everything, even the rocks and you know, stones, frogs and all animals, and, and amphibians and insects. And, I mean, the, the ant spoke and Sulaiman heard the ant. And there's a whole chapter in the Qur'an dedicated to the ant. You know? So everything is, is in a form of, of submission. And therefore, we, we need to be, be respectful. So, I'm not saying you have to put away the fur coats, but I wouldn't necessarily buy a second one, since the question was asked. We don't really have to worry about that. We're just, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, it's not an issue of being polite or not. It's it's an issue of the sunnah. So there are two opinions. The Shafi'is they say yes, you pray the sunnah, and and the Malikis and others say don't pray the sunnah because you came late. So you can follow whichever whichever opinion you feel most inclined to. I'm a Shafi'i, so no matter how late I come, I would pray the sunnah. There's a hadith. Uh, a famous hadith in Bukhari called the Hadith of Sulaik because it's named after the Sahaba. And Sulaik came to the prayer late, to Jum'ah late, and he walked into the mosque and he sat down. And the Prophet ﷺ was giving the khutbah and the Prophet ﷺ said, no, Sulaik, stand and pray the sunnah. That's the hadith. So the Shafi'is, we say, okay, the hadith is very clear. If you come to the Jum'ah late, pray, pray the sunnah. The Malikis, they said no. When we investigated this hadith, we found that Sulaik was poor. And he would only come to town on Jummah, uh, you know, because some of the more wealthy Sahaba would take care of him. So because he came late, the Prophet asked him to stand so everyone would know that he was in the mosque that day. So there was a specific uh, ruling for this Sahaba for that reason. So this is why... And in light of what we just said earlier, this is why sometimes we can have difference of interpretation. Now which one is right? Well, they're both... Correct. They're both correct interpretations because they're based on sound principles. So, so depending on how you feel, you can you can um, you can do it. So I come. Well, if the khutbah is bad, you don't lose any reward. No, I'm just kidding. Um, well. No, I mean the, the the hadith about that you're referring to are to encourage you to come on time or early because it's a blessed time. Um, but that's also in the context that like that day is off for everyone, so you know, don't, uh, don't sleep in and, and miss the, the reward. But for us who are working and we ba barely squeeze in, no, we're still rewarded for, for the effort, I mean, without doubt. So don't, don't interpret it <coughs> negatively. Don't say, well, you know, the book is closed, I might as well not go. Like, don't, like, don't do that. Because you never know where the blessing is, you know. It could be anybody. Anybody else? Well, I thought four weeks absence. I'm gonna get like a, a, a deluge of questions. Alhamdulillah, you guys did well without me. Alhamdulillah. Maybe I, I could just I can leave again. Uh, what is the Islamic ruling on end of life measures or withholding treatment? How do doctors like reconcile that? Or um, in well, again, it, this, this is that's a very specific uh, thing, but we we should try to preserve life w w where it's feasible, and th and that requires uh, medical and a medical expert, you know, whatever that case to answer that question. I mean, I don't know if if the, if, the, if it's feasible or not, but 
what doesn't make sense is that you know you save because our understanding of life actually is a little bit different than the medical understanding of life as well. Mm-hmm. So you know somebody can be medically alive but like brain dead, but connected to a machine. Well, that no one wants that. I mean, what's the point of that? That's just that. So you need, I think, medical input uh, in those in those scenarios. Um, but having a DNR would not necessarily be haram because. You know, we also believe if you're going to go, you're going to go. Like, I have a DNR. My wife and I, we signed, we signed that. Or I think we gave permission to each other to sign that. With the understanding that, you know, again, what I'm saying, within, within reason. So if somebody's like collapsing and if you intervene and you have the chance to save them, you should save them. But if somebody is like, you know, 102 and they had a heart attack in the hospital, maybe that's, you know, and intervening would mean this and it would mean that and all of this massive, you know, drama then maybe at that point you'd be like okay it's their time is their time but if you had a heart attack we would do everything we can to save you up to a point i mean okay. up to a point. so so then how does islam define life because that matters when you're talking about abortion or end of life or whatever well abortion is different because we have we have texts on that so um the hanafis they allow assalamualaikum how are you <coughs> the, the Hanafis allow abortion up to 120 days. Um, and that's because of the hadith of when the, when the soul is, is entered into the body. Um, the other madhahib, they don't. Yeah. So while we're on this topic, what's the um, thing about organ donation? I thought my wife had said you're not allowed to donate your organs because then it desecrates the body. Or well, this was this is a controversial issue, but most of the the, the fiqh bodies allow organ donation. I I do not, but who am I? But um, because the issue is is that the organ to be usable is actually in a way taken while the person is still Islamically alive, which is what I was trying to to, to say. So technically, it's not really valid. But, but because of the, you know, the big wigs, they got together and they discussed this in detail. If, if people want to follow that opinion, uh, they can. But you should not feel bad. By, I mean, I don't, I, whenever I get my license renewed or something, you know, they always like, they guilt trip you. Like, do you want to help little kids that are, no. They, they make it so you end up saying no to a ridiculous question. But... Um, Technically, I find some difficulty in that in that opinion, for that reason. So, but if somebody is an organ donor, you, you can follow that opinion and, and and not feel bad. But but if you're contemplating it, I would like to influence you to keep your organs in in, in your body. <laughs> like now, like donate. Yeah, that I mean, that's not going to kill you. But you gotta have a lot of love for that. I mean, it's gotta be, it's gotta be somebody very special. But yeah, I guess. I mean, you could do that. Not in the way that you're thinking. So our form of dawah is just to be a good person. If we, if we just, you know, that's what we were, I was trying to say earlier in the khutbah, is that a lot of people that, that go, you know, do this dawah, like go out and, you know, they actually, many times they, they do more harm than good. They're completely detached, they don't speak the language, they're detached from reality, you know, they go to places and, and it's like almost like comical. Uh, because they have, this, they have this notion that they have to do this. Because, you know, but Allah Ta'ala, He says, Give dawah with hikmah, with wisdom, not with stupidity. So you have to be smart in how we... So that's what the Qur'an says. What we need to do though is we need to, uh, you know, we need to have it together ourselves. I mean, ma- many of us are not, you know, are not, are still struggling with our own Islam. And I think that first and foremost, we need to be, you know, with it. And guidance 
furthermore is something that belongs only to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You can't, you know, Allah says, لَا تَهْدِي مَنْ أَحْبَبْتُ وَلَكِنَ اللَّهُ يَهْدِي مَنْ يَشَاءُ He addresses the Prophet He says, you cannot guide who you want, we guide whom we will. So if the Prophet could not affect, you know, his own uncle believing, etc., then who are we to, you know, so it's something that belongs only to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I mean, one time I remember I was here on like, it was, it was a Sunday, it was a random uh, like afternoon, right? It was a, maybe it was a Thursday. And, and um, you know the, the brother that owns the kebab place in the mall? Yeah, he came in with some guy, he's like, look, this guy, he wants to be Muslim. I was like, okay, say the shahada, he said the shahada and he left. Just, just like that. You know, just literally it was like 10 minutes and then he left. So it was, Allah wanted this person to be God. I don't I have no idea what happened. I've never seen him again. I don't know if he's still Muslim, but he just came up, he came in randomly with the guy, the brother. and Maybe an angel. So guidance really belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You, you can try and you can sin. It's, just not, it's not gonna work. But if you do a good deed to somebody and you let them know you're Yeah, we have no obligation. I mean, you don't, you know, for people, for people like me, we can't hide that we're Muslim. But, but some people, they can blend in. So for me, I mean, I have a big sign that, you know, you know I'm a Muslim. And, and women that cover, you know, of course, they do too. So the idea is just to, to be the best embodiment of Islam that we can be. Hayya ala 